And a special warm welcome to you if you're watching at home online as well. Thanks so much for joining us and being with us this morning. Um, we are in the third week of a teaching series where we're going through Paul's letter to a church in the Greek town of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. It's his second letter, but they lost the first one, uh, so they called this 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week, we looked at the, uh, the idea of what, what spirituality is and what Christian maturity looks like. And we said it looks like, in large part, love. It looks like other-centered serving. Um, so on your seats, actually, there are some forms. And if you're new to us, checking us out, and you'd like to find out more or connect in with us, if you'd like to join a team or be part of a group, you can tick a box and, uh, and put it in the metal box at the back on the wall. We'd love to get to know you more and to welcome you to the church family some more as well. Today, um, we are looking at the, uh, the exciting subject of church discipline. I know. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that why you came to church today to talk about church discipline? Uh, but we're going to be asking the question, who are you to judge? Not as in, who are you to judge? But who are you to judge? As in, what people? Which people are you to judge? Which may sound like a strange question to ask because we're in a society that almost has as one of its golden rules, thou shalt not judge. And yet we're going to read the Apostle Paul saying, no, thou must judge, actually. It's important that we judge. Making judgments, discerning, is the reason you're here today. You've learned to navigate the, the, the perils and dangers of life in making wise judgments to keep you alive today. But we also understand that it is acceptable and appropriate and necessary to judge other people on occasions. We judge movements like ISIS or National Socialism, the Nazis. We judge that and we don't think we're wrong to judge that. Um, we judge people who break the law. We call them criminals. <laughs> uh, we judge their behavior. It's even, it's even important and appropriate to judge opinions that people have. Uh, people who are Holocaust deniers, we judge that opinion and say that's wrong. You, you shouldn't hold that opinion. And actually, we're in a society where increasingly, whether in the name of political correctness or whatever, people are judging and judging opinions. There, are the, there is the right thing to say and the wrong thing to say. And so we're going to be looking at that together today. Who are we to judge? To help us with that, we're going to read the entirety of two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5 from 1 Corinthians. Um, I think it's always nice to let the Bible speak for itself, to give it as much airtime as we can and sit under its breeze, even if that breeze is a strong easterly wind, to confuse my metaphors. Um, if we bring up the Bible reading, let's, let's dive in. I'll read it off the screen then. Oh, I spelt it wrong. Oh, it's the start. Here then, I think it's supposed to say, here then is how you ought to regard us, the Apostle Paul says at the start of chapter 3, 4. Here then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who, ha that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court, Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. 
Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of all of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who, who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old, leavened, old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter, not to, that's the first one, the one we lost. I wrote you in my letter, not to, no, I didn't lose it, <laughs> just to say that, um, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunk, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is God's word. 
Now, to answer the question, who are you to judge? We need to first of all think through our identity. What is the church? And I think there's a common thread of that that statement, that underlying Paul's thinking in what he's writing to the church here to help us. And we're going to look at identity of Christians, identity of the church as being three things from this reading. One, that Christians are guardians of the mysteries of God. He talks about this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Number two, Christians are to be imitators of Christ. Discusses this in verses 8 to 21. And then number three, that we are temples of God. Holy people. He discusses this in chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. So let's look at this first one. Guardians. You are, if you're a Christian, we are guardians of the mysteries of God. That's what it says in my translation, that, you are, we, that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, we've been entrusted with something. That we're to guard and prize as precious. Last week we saw that the Apostle Paul says that boasting is babyish. And the reason boasting in different Christian leaders, whoever they may be, is babyish, I mean, they were doing it, they were saying, I of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. And we do it, we say, I'm of John Piper, I'm of Tim Keller, I'm of Bethel, or I'm of Bill Johnson. We boast in different leaders and say, these are the people. And he says, the reason that's babyish is because the master matters most. The job of a servant is to point to the master. For Downton Abbey fans, you'd understand this. Um, If you visited Grantham Estate but came away boasting at the brilliance of Mr. Carson, you'd realize something was wrong. The job of the butler is to show off the brilliance of his master. The job of a Christian servant is to show off Christ. It would be strange to go to Gotham City and be more impressed by Alfred the butler than by Batman the saviour. But that's what was going on in the church. They were boasting in their, their leaders and their way that they ministered, their personalities and their gifts. That was their problem. And to some extent, as I mentioned, that is ours. However, I think we in the church today need to hear from these verses something else. Namely, that we, if you're a Christian... We've been entrusted with the charge of being custodians and guardians of the mysteries and truth of God. Meaning, we haven't got license to change God's word. That's our identity. We're guardians. My friend who's a church leader um, was talking to someone recently, and he said something I thought was very wise. Uh, This individual was describing some things in his life that he was battling and struggling with lifestyle differences between himself and what the Word of God says. And my my friend said, look, you are very welcome to be part of us, and we love having you, but you need to know, I as a church leader do not have permission to change the Bible to fit your desires. See, the mysteries of God is like a beautiful work of art, a masterpiece, a priceless painting that's been put on display and our job in the church is to show off the painting and we can do that and our methods and modes and ways that we show off the painting can change maybe to keep up with the times you know the Mona Lisa to display the Mona Lisa with digital lighting instead of candle lighting is is fine but to change the Mona Lisa with digital graphics is not to change the gospel to change the the truth of God's word 
is not acceptable, but to present it differently, to change how we talk about it, is fine. So our identity is that we are guardians of the galaxy. I mean, guardians of the mysteries of God. And as such, Paul is concerned, not with the church's judgment of him, not even with his own judgment of him, but he's concerned with God's judgment. And where the church, where Christians become more worried about what other people in the culture around them think of them than they are with what God thinks of them, they're in danger of losing the gospel. And we saw last week, human beings cannot find God by themselves. God is outside the system. The only way we know anything about God is that God has written himself into the story. We're characters like Harry Potter. He's the author like J.K. Rowling. He wrote himself into the story. It's the only way we can know anything about him. And if we start messing with what he's told us and we forget it or we lose it or we change it so that it doesn't even look like that anymore, well, we can't just rediscover it because it has to be revealed from heaven. But the key here, and I think what Paul what shares offers us a key to how we can overcome um, crippling levels of ego or of insecurities of self-consciousness. When he says, I, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I don't judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. There is freedom in self-forgetfulness. When you're not worried about what people think of you, you're not even worried about what you think of you. You're worried about the, what the Lord thinks of you. And in the gospel, he's already said that you're approved and acquitted and forgiven. So that's the first thing, that we are guardians of the gospel, guardians of the mysteries of Christ. The second thing that Paul says in these verses about who you are, if you're a Christian, is that you are to be an imitator of Christ. In the verses that we read that, Paul, that might have surprised you as I was reading them, the Apostle Paul is really quite sarcastic about the Corinthians. See, they're very impressed with themselves, their worldly wealth and their wisdom and their personalities. And the Apostle Paul is sarcastically ranting at them like, oh, you've become wise and we're idiots. You've become wealthy and we're poor. You've obviously got it right. And in, in that phrase that is still in modern English now, he says, we've become the scum of the whole earth. But you, I mean, you're very important. The Corinthians loved glamour and fame and celebrity. And more, they saw wealth, worldly wealth, financial power. They saw that as being a sign that they'd been specially approved by God or that they were special people. And as a result, they're critical of Paul. Because Paul, as he says, is often homeless and broke and his lifestyle doesn't match up to these personalities and celebrities in their society. Paul describes himself. He says, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless. I mean, no doubt he would have preferred not to be. He says, when we are insulted, we bless in return. When we're persecuted, we endure. Again, no doubt he would have preferred not to. No, no doubt he would have preferred to get even. But as a servant of Christ, he's given up his rights. Given up the rights on his life and the rights to behave however he wants. The Corinthians were proud and impressed with themselves and they saw celebrity status as a significant sign of maturity. And so the modern parallels here are scary as well. We are living in an age where there is a cancer in the church known as the health, wealth and prosperity gospel that says if you're loved by God and if you do the right thing, you will be healthy, you will be blessed, you will never suffer illness. What's more, you will be wealthy and you will have money, 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 money. It's a, an abomination that's come largely out of America in the past hundred years and has infected the church. So, so we think 
We're loved by God and blessed by God if we're healthy, wealthy and prospering. It's not true. Still, it wasn't true for Paul. And it wasn't true for Jesus. I don't know why it would be true for us. And there's, um, there's actually a sarcastic and scary Instagram ac- account that I came across that tracks some of the, the lavishness of some so-called celebrity Christians in the world. Here's a picture of it. It's called um, Sneakers and Preachers, or Preachers and Sneakers, or something. Um, and they kind of, they do it sarcastically just to point out the difference between perhaps what Paul's saying and how Jesus lives and how some Christian preachers are preaching. So a, a Christian celebrity preacher with, you know, nearly a thousand dollar pair of trainers, um, or another one who's praying for God's blessing on your life while wearing a suit that's three and a half grand and a Gucci handbag or shoes. Like the, this is so different from what the Apostle Paul is saying here. They are, this is the epitome of worldly status seeking, being celebrities in the eyes of the world. It's a cancer in the church. The only time I've ever thrown a book across the room, I was reading uh, Randy Alcorn's amazing book, Money, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And he has a chapter where he essentially exposes some of this in the church. And the, you know, give us your money and we'll pray for you and you'll be fine. Send us $1,000 now and you'll experience blessing for the rest of your life. He was writing about how this goes on in the church. And I lobbed the book across the room, so angry. I think that's how Paul feels about the church here. He's sarcastically ranting. You are so rich, we're poor. You're clearly more loved by God than us. No, you're worldly. And the reason he responds to like that is because he says, my response to this is, I'm going to send you Timothy, and Timothy is going to remind you of my ways in Christ that I teach everywhere. My ways in Christ. Imitate me as I imitate him. Christ has overthrown and overturned the values of this world. He was born as a penniless, to a penniless carpenter and a teenage girl in a backwater part of the Roman Empire of its day in a stable because they didn't have enough money to hire a room. He was a poor man, and his people imitate him in displaying the otherworldly glory of Christ. Who are you? Who are we as the people then? Not hashtag too blessed to be stressed. No, not reigning in life and everything's going fine for me. No, we are those who imitate the crucified king. That's the call on the church. We've said as a church, we're here to be the most prayerful, generous, and courageous we can be as we try to imitate him. So I think that, again, forms part of our identity. Not only are we um, guardians of the gospel, we're also imitators of Christ. But then lastly, the Apostle Paul says that as the church, as Christians, we are the temple of God. And this is where he, this is his most, this is the most detailed description of uh, how discipline in the local church worked in the first century and how we're to think about it. It's quite challenging. It's quite offensive to modern ears. But I want you to consider a case study for the moment. Imagine a man in our congregation, in our church, is having sex with his dad's wife. Imagine then that people find out about this in the church And then it soon becomes clear that not only does the dad know about this, he's actually okay with it, he's approving of it, and the man is thinking of now moving in with his new mistress. What would you do if you discovered that something like that was going on in the church? 
how should the church respond to people whose lifestyles, not just, not just how should the church respond to people who make mistakes or sin or aren't perfect. No, how should the church respond to individuals who boast in a way of life that is counter to the Christian life? What should we do? Well, in the church in Corinth, their response to discovering this was going on in the church, their response was to be proud of it to boast about it, to say, look how progressive we are as a church. Isn't this wonderful? As modern people, we might hear this and go, oh, no one's getting hurt. They're two consenting adults. What's the problem? We're free. And actually, next week, we're going to be talking more as we get into chapter 6 about what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. But for today, what I want you to see is that Paul's outrage here doesn't come from the fact that he's prudish or down on you know freedom of expression it doesn't come from the fact that he has traditional values it comes from the fact that paul understands the identity of the church as being a holy temple so we're guardians we're imitators but we're also a holy people and this way of thinking about the church forms a large part of the way Paul and the other New Testament writers think about the people of God. And without understanding it, a lot of what they say doesn't make sense to us. We think they're just being a bit strange or over the top. But in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, If anyone destroys God's temple, they should beware. God will destroy him. And in the next chapter, he's going to say, Don't you know that you're the temple of God? You have the Spirit in you. You see, just as it would be maybe wrong or inappropriate to put a statue of a Buddha in a mosque... So, it's wrong to boast about sin in church. Not in the building, but among a people who are the church. Church, you see, is not a perfect people. In fact, the entry-level requirement for becoming a Christian is acknowledging you are a deeply flawed, sinful human being. So, you know, let's just get that clear. The only way you become a Christian is by acknowledging, I'm a mess and a failure and a sinner. So the church is, by f- is definitely not a place for perfect, squeaky clean people, no. But it is a place for people who are being perfected by the Holy Spirit. And what, the way Paul thinks about the church, we can really un- only understand it when we see it as a continuation of an idea from the Old Testament that is to do with the, the concept of sacred spaces, So, in the Old Testament, there was sacred places. A sacred place was a place where God lived. And it started, uh, the first sacred place in the Bible is the the Garden of Eden. Sacred because God dwelt there with humanity. Humanity sinned and they have to be removed from that sacred place, but God lived there. That's what made it sacred. Through the story of the Old Testament, uh, as they get set free from slavery in Egypt, in Egypt, uh, Egypt, that's a strange way of saying Egypt. Um, let's just get stuck on that word Egypt. Let's keep going. Uh, they, get, they get set free from Egypt and they're in the desert. And God, again, comes to dwell with his people in the tabernacle and it makes it a sacred place. Once they've got the land and they establish peace, they then build a temple and God blesses it with his presence. It becomes a sacred place. In the New Testament, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his followers. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls and we become the church, a holy place, a people where God dwells. In the modern West, we think about sacred spaces differently, but we do have a way of understanding sacredness, um, particularly when it comes to food and kitchens. 
So to get the five-star health and hygiene food rating that we got in this building, mm. to get that, Deborah had to demonstrate a strict understanding of sacred space, rituals, and rules in our society. Food will dwell in this kitchen. Bacteria cannot. It is a sacred place. You know, imagine going to a restaurant and discovering a spider in your soup. And imagine then complaining and discovering that not only were they not bothered, they were boasting in their new culinary techniques. We found it on the floor and put it in. It's a new flavor we're experimenting with. I really like um, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, where he goes into failing restaurants and turns them around, and he goes livid when he sees signs of poor health and hygiene in a, in a hotel, hotel restaurant. If he was writing a letter to a, to a restaurant, like Paul is to the church, it would be St. Gordon Ramsay, although I don't think that word has ever been put in front of Gordon Ramsay, St. Gordon Ramsay to the restaurant in Corinth. A chef spat in someone's dinner, and you're proud, he would say to them. Expel this immoral chef, or he might say, fire him at the very least, because he has an understanding of sacredness and sacred spaces. And actually, we then come to this um, verse that, as we read it, you may have thought it was particularly strange, where the Apostle Paul says, you are in verse 5 of chapter 5, you must deliver this man who's sinning in this way. You must deliver him over to Satan. As we read that, we thought, is this something to do with Halloween? <laughs> um, well, no, Paul isn't talking about black magic or exorcism. Rather, he's saying, remove this individual from the place that God dwells into the place where Satan still holds sway. So if we come back to our chart or our, our table we're going to build. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the place that God dwells into the wilderness, which was the, the place where Satan and evil hold sway. In the tabernacle, when, um, when an individual sins, and actually you see this a lot in um, the last verse of chapter 5, where he says, purge the evil person from among you, is a quote from Deuteronomy. And that phrase comes up a lot about remove the evil. Remove it to outside the camp where evil is, where Satan dwells. In the temple, they were removed into the place of exile, and in the church, the place where Satan still holds sway is the world. The God of this age, we're told, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. That's, that's the Apostle Paul's framework for understanding the world. Fire him. Expel him. Remove him. You must judge this individual, he says. And he uses, the, he uses a food metaphor. He says it's like yeast in dough. It will spread and fill the whole lump. Or as we might have it, it's like a little bit of mold on a block of cheese. You cut it off, otherwise you know the whole block of cheese is going to be infected. A temple that loses its God is just another community hall. And a church that boasts in sin or treats it lightly becomes just another club. And actually that's what tends to happen. Where churches liberalize, become too progressive or go beyond the Bible in their progressiveness, a generation later those churches don't exist because they've lost the thing that made them distinctive in the first place. Or as Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, salt you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is good for nothing, and no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Strong words, difficult for us to hear and think about. Who are you to judge? Well, let's read again what Paul says in verses 11 to 13. 
He says this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you'd have to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Strong words. Again, he's not saying people who make mistakes or struggle with weakness or battle with sin. No. He's saying in the context, it's people who are doing these things and boasting about them. And saying, well, this is fine. It's just modern Christianity. We've got guitars and drums. We've also got people sleeping around. What's the difference? It's just modern Christianity, modern church. But who are you to judge? Not as in who are you, but which person? From what we've just read there, Paul's clear. Firstly, you're not to judge people outside of the church. If they're not Christians, why would you judge them as Christians? I read a book this year uh, about um, 1920s to 1980s Britain. And I didn't realize this. Maybe you didn't. Maybe I'm sure you did. But in, in, in Britain, between the 1920s and the 1960s, 70s, there was a government official government body known as the Public Morality Committee and several others like them, whose job it was was to regulate the moral life of the country by imposing Christian values on non-Christian peoples and institutions. And it was led by the church. So the church was this people who everything that went out, every public communication, every show that went on in the theater, every book, every this, every display in the window, the shop did a, a shopkeeper was putting on, Christians, MPs, church leaders, would commit themselves day, day in, day out, hour after hour, to critique and judge the morality of our country. Now, it no doubt came from a good heart, a good place. But Paul's quite clear. Who are we to judge those who aren't Christians? Why would we? They don't believe in God. Why would I impose a Christian standard of morality on a non-believer? That's just bizarre. He says, those people will, they'll answer to God for themselves. But it's, in many ways, it's, it's none of my business what the world does. They need to make up their own minds. However, he says, you are to judge those within the church, brothers and sisters. If there is someone who is naming Christ, calling themselves a Christian, then you do have a responsibility to discern for them and to help them. In the book of James, he says, you cannot praise God with your mouth in one minute and then the next minute curse your brother. That's not on. Here, you cannot sing, I surrender all to Jesus, but keep your internet browsing to yourself. You cannot offer your body to God in worship in the morning and then in the evening offer it to your boyfriend or girlfriend or stepmom for sexual immorality. Everything belongs to God. And if you're a Christian, it means I've bowed the knee and now Christ is all. And everything I do comes under his lordship. In verse 11, he says something again quite challenging. He says, with an individual like that, I'm telling you to not even associate with such a one. Don't eat with them. Which again can sound like he's saying, cross the road when you see them, ignore them, or they've gone astray. But actually, again, because of the phrase he says, I'm telling you not even to eat with such a one, he's more meaning, don't share communion with individuals like that. Put them out of the church community and the fellowship. 
And this, again, can all sound very harsh, but until you understand, he says, even when he says about handing him over to Satan, you're doing it so that even after his body has been destroyed, his spirit will be saved. The heart motive underlying any of this for the saints is both the glory of God, because we're the temple of God, but it's the, it's the safety and ultimately the salvation of the individual in question. In that sense, judgment isn't condemnation but it's drastic action taken in love for an individual to save them. And that's where perhaps some of the, the spirit of the public morality co- committee in the UK and in conservative Christianity goes wrong. It comes across as harsh, domineering, strong, you must not get out, disfellowship. Whereas it's clear, Paul is concerned with the love, the love of a father for a people, concerned for their safety. You know, when you, take, um, when you take medicine, you are judging the virus. When you cut mold off some food, you are judging that mold, but you're doing it to save the, save the patient and to save the food. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Why? He says, because it is better to live this life maimed than to go to hell with your whole body intact. He's concerned for the safety of individuals. So sin is not, a, it's not just something that preachers rant about. It's something that will kill you, destroy you, rob you of life, and ultimately separate you from God. It's a problem. To see someone boasting about, to see a Christian, let's be clear, to see a Christian who's, who's naming Christ and is boasting about sin and sexual immorality or drunkenness or greed, as in the case of perhaps some of, some of that health, wealth, and prosperity stuff, to see someone who's boasting about greed and to ignore it is not loving. It's unloving, actually. You know, and I get it. It's uncomfortable and it's difficult to confront people well. But love does it anyway because love is about the other person and not about what's comfortable for me. You know, I can think of numerous occasions in my life where someone has challenged me on sin in my life and their challenge has caused me to rethink and change the way I live and it's resulted in health and healing. And that ultimately is the heart behind this. And so the question then, who are we to judge? Well, Christians who are boasting in sin who are glorifying in worldly values rather than promoting Christ. And Christians, perhaps, who are losing the mysteries of God in Christ. May we never lose the wonder of having God's presence among us, the privilege of that. May we prize it. May we love it. May we pursue it. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Make us a pure people for Christ's glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray and then Kev's going to lead us in a song of response.